Hey, my name is Matt. I'm also one of the leaders here. My name is also Matt. I haven't made a Matt joke in a long time, so there it is. <laughs> Thanks, Matt Martin, for doing that. Yeah. Um, we're super glad that you're here with us this morning. We have a big piece of text to go through, so we are going to pray and just jump right into the text. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11. And before we start reading, we are going to pray. God, we come to you this morning and ask for you to be present with us as we read the text. Uh, we acknowledge that, that what we're about to read about happened thousands of years ago, and it, and it meant something when you talked to your disciples and you talked to the crowds, and that was, that was important. And we also acknowledge that the text that's been passed down to us is, is for us. There's not only something in it for the original audience, but there's something in it for us this morning. And I pray that through your spirit, you would help it make sense to us. That through my words or through the words on the page or just through your spirit speaking directly to people, God, that you would apply these words. Help us to follow you better and to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we're going to start in Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds." Okay, it was a long passage, and there's a lot in it for us, but uh, if you're anything like me, a lot of those things are confusing. So uh, if some of those words were just like, I don't even know what's going on here, if, if that's kind of your initial reaction to the text, you're in good company. Um, I have a seminary degree, and I've been studying this text for two weeks, and it's confusing. It, it's, it takes a lot of work to even understand what is going on here. 
if we uh, just work back through the text, which is kind of the plan for this morning, hopefully we can come to a better understanding not only of what Jesus is saying to John's disciples and his own disciples in the crowd, but also what it means for us today. So in verse 1, it says, After Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So this is like a summary statement that Matthew gives us. It's pointing us back to what we have been talking about over the last two weeks. It's really uh, Jesus' marketing strategy for the kingdom. It's, it's the sort of the stuff that you would put on the billboards. Hey, if you want to be uh, my disciple, here's what's going to happen. People are going to betray you. Like your own children are going to betray you to death. And people are going to reject you. And if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Which is like cheery, easy stuff. Not so much, right? So what we talked about over the last two weeks is really that message that Jesus gives to his disciples. And then in verse 2, we get this really interesting episode. It says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So what's going on here? Well, if you remember John, it's John the Baptist. And in Matthew 3, is where we did read about this, probably months ago, but John the Baptist was a preacher out in the wilderness, think the desert, and John's message was essentially one of repent. I mean, that, that was how his teaching was summarized. In Matthew 3.1, this is what we get. Maybe. There we go. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So there's this guy, John, he's in the wilderness, and he preaches a message of repentance. He also says some pretty um, abrasive things towards the religious establishment. And John also had disciples who fasted, and uh, he taught them how to pray. And that will be important as we work through this text. Uh, But John was a teacher just like Jesus, who had his own disciples, his own followers, his own apprentices. And John taught them how to fast and pray. In Luke 11, uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, hey, teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples to pray. There's also this episode in Luke 5, 35, where uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. So John taught his followers a specific way of relating to God, a specific spirituality. And so thinking about it all together, John was a prophet calling people to repent. And he was a teacher that had this significant following. And we also know that family-wise, John was uh, the descendant of a guy named Zechariah who was a priest. And he was also Jesus' cousin. And what we get, if we were to go back and read Matthew 3, is this episode where Jesus actually goes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. And John says about Jesus, hey, there's one coming who, whose sandal I'm not even worthy to carry. There's, there's one coming who is so much greater, so much more important, that I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. And then when Jesus comes into the Jordan to be baptized by John, John says, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be, need to be baptized by you. So if we were to go back and read Matthew 3, John recognizes who Jesus is from the outset. 
not only as a family member, but for Jesus' greatness, for his importance, for his status as the Messiah. It's really clear in Matthew 3. And here, in Matthew 11, is really where the confusion sets in. Because John had recognized Jesus as the Messiah. He, he's the promised Messiah. He's, he's recognized his greatness. He, he knows that the Messiah has come to set the world right, to, to do away with sin and evil and wickedness in the world, to remake all of creation. The, the Messiah was coming to judge and to restore Israel. That's what John knew. The Messiah is here. And then later, John gets thrown into jail. And John is in jail. And in verse 2, he hears about the sorts of stuff that Jesus is doing. And he sends his disciples to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? Did I do something wrong? Jesus, did you forget about me in the jail? Did I miss it? What's going on here? I know you're the Messiah, but why am I stuck in this jail cell? Are you the Messiah? Maybe we should wait for someone else. Maybe I got that wrong. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, hey, are are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Did we get this right? You're the Messiah, right? And Jesus responds, go and tell John what you see and hear. And then Jesus lists it all off. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Don't just take my yes or no for it, but look at what's going on around you. Look at what's happening. And for us, we read something like that and we go, oh, that's pretty cool stuff that Jesus is doing. But there's layers here. There's tons of layers here. Because what Jesus is pointing to is his fulfillment of the prophecies about Messiah. So one example of that is in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says almost the exact same things. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, there's this prophecy about the messianic age, and Jesus is saying, it's coming true. It's happening. Look around you. And if you think back to the way that Jesus started his teaching, in the synagogue, he takes the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he opens it up, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And Jesus says, This has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? Jesus is saying, look, it's happening. Look around. Look, see, listen. But Jesus, that's all good and and fine and well about Isaiah 35, 5. But what about Isaiah 35, 4? What, What about what comes directly beforehand? There's blessing and judgment in these passages. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Jesus, I see the blessing stuff happening, but but where is the divine retribution? Where is the vengeance? Why am I in a jail cell? And what about Isaiah 61 too? Yes, the Messiah was, was promised to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but also the day of vengeance of our God both. Jesus, if you are the Messiah and you've come to bring blessing and to set the world right and judge sin and evil in the world, where is that? Why am I in this prison? Which I think we can all agree is a legitimate question because it's similar to the sorts of questions that you and I ask all the time. 
um, God, if you're there and you, you, you care and you're good, why am I going through this? It, it, if you really are who you say you are, why, why do we see all this sin and evil in the world? Why do people still get cancer? Why do earthquakes ravage cities? Why does it feel like I have to fight against temptation every single day? Why are the Patriots in the Super Bowl again? <laughs> Amen, right? Thank you. So that one's a joke. But seriously, they're legitimate questions. John is asking a question that we have all asked and, and we continue to ask and it's, it's a legitimate thing to struggle through. Jesus, if you're really king, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really who I know who you say you are, then why haven't you done away with the sin and evil and wickedness and death in the world? Why not? What are you waiting for? And Jesus' answer is very frustrating and very hopeful. Look around, Jesus says. Go and tell them what you see. Those prophecies are being fulfilled. Yes, I am the one. And those passages, those promises from Isaiah, but also elsewhere, those are being fulfilled in me. Judgment is not forgotten, but it's also not immediate. Look and see. Carefully consider who I am and what's going on and what I'm doing, because you'll see that it's coming true. But the way that I operate, in line with the Father, it's different than your expectations. It's different than your timing. And then he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's what Jesus says. Blessed is anyone who isn't completely thrown off by the way that I work. It's cause for stumbling for some. But you, John, in that jail cell, waiting on me, counting on me, believing in me, trusting that I am the Messiah, the King of the universe, blessed are you in the midst of your jail cell. You're blessed. So then Jesus answers the question with, this both frustrating and promising response. And the, the disciples of John go back, foreseeably to tell John exactly what Jesus has said and what they've seen and heard. And then Jesus turns back to the audience in verse 7 and says something to make sure that the audience doesn't think that John was wrong or, or that he's a bad guy for asking the question. Jesus goes on to say some pretty incredible things about John. In, in verse 7, we read, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Like a weak, flaky teacher who was just thrown, away, thrown around by the wind of the day? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you in more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Whoa. So John himself had this significant role in God's plan for the cosmos. John himself is the fulfillment of prophecy. John himself, Jesus will go on to say, is actually the, the Elijah who was 
to return, to prepare the way for the world to receive Jesus, which should teach us something about the way that God works. If you ever think that God can't use you because you have too many doubts, you're too confused, you haven't quite gotten it yet, look at the question that John asks and look at the role that God has given him. If you look at the question that John is asking and you see the way that that God uses him as the forerunner of the Messiah, and Jesus even says the greatest prophet to come before him. It's just shocking. And then Jesus pivots for an aside, which I think is really important for you and I today. He says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In ages coming, Jesus says, as my kingdom breaks into the world, that people will enter it for real. And the least of the people in that kingdom are, are even greater than John. And, and Jesus isn't saying anything bad or negative or denigrating about John, but he's bringing out the wonder of being in the kingdom. Great though he was, John belonged to an old order of things. John pointed people forward towards Jesus. And then once Jesus is on the scene and, and he gives his spirit, a whole new order has come about. And, and Jesus points out in this, this statement the true privilege, the true wonder, the true greatness of being brought into the kingdom. There's another interesting thing in this passage that I want to point out. It's kind of a aside, but I think it's really important. If you notice, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament here. Or at least he sort of quotes from the Old Testament. He's quoting Malachi 3.1. But strictly speaking, Malachi 3.1 says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's what Malachi 3.1 says about the Elijah who was to come before the Messiah. But look at the way that Jesus actually quotes it. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Do you notice what Jesus did? In a prophecy that was originally in the first person, as Yahweh, God, is speaking, who will prepare the way before me, when Jesus quotes it, he puts himself in there. It, like a conversation within the Trinity. It's, it's this little picture that we get. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So we shouldn't miss the fact that in a passage that was originally talking about Yahweh, Jesus puts himself in there and shows that he is the manifestation of Yahweh. So for all the questions about where in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God, this is one of many places where Jesus straight up does it. We're seven more verses to go through. Everyone still with me? Okay. After Jesus talks about the greatness of the least in the kingdom, he makes this notoriously hard-to-translate comment. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. What the heck does that mean? Like I said, I've spent like two weeks looking at this passage, and I have a seminary degree, and this should be like easy stuff, right? Not really. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of scholarly debate about what exactly this passage or this one sentence is really supposed to mean. But what you'll notice is that in this chapter, Jesus is talking about really two ages or two generations or two sets of days. There's these sets of days that are leading up to him and then there's this age beyond him. An age that he inaugurates because he's on the scene. 
And Jesus says, in that time leading up to him, from that age until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. From scholars, and the best that we can tell, Jesus is saying that from that age until now, from, from the previous age up until him, that violent people, those with a thirst for power, those people who've been attacking what they perceive to be the kingdom, they've been subjecting the kingdom to violence. And these violent people who don't really understand what's going on in the kingdom, they're fighting against it. And the sorts of things that, that they're doing is like throwing John into jail or accusing Jesus and then the same sorts of people, these violent people are the same sorts of ones who will eventually crucify Jesus. One of the commentaries written by Leon Morris says it this way. I think it's really helpful. People like those in power in the world of Judaism act violently in seizing what they conceive to be the kingdom and in seeking the best for themselves as they reject what God offers in his Christ. It, it, it's this violent, selfish, power over, assert against sort of mindset. And, and by describing these people, Jesus really launches into a closing discussion about what these people are like and what these people are like who imprisoned John. So he, he even goes back to talk about John again. If we pick up again in verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you were willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds." So, so Jesus is saying, what, what are the people of this age like? What are the, what are the people of these days, what are the, the leaders who've imprisoned John, these violent people who are accusing me and who will eventually crucify me, what are they like? He says they're like children in a marketplace. And they play a dancing song and they get mad at you because you don't dance. And they sing a dirge, which can also be translated and no lie, what I did was, in Microsoft Word, you know, you can do a synonym tool. And the synonyms that it gave me were elegy and requiem. So that should be helpful for everyone. They sing a dirge, which is a sad song. And they get mad at you because you won't mourn. It, these people get mad because they do something and they, they can't elicit a response in you. They, they desire to control. Heck, Jesus goes on. They are so backwards that John came neither eating nor drinking and they accused him of having a demon. So if you remember earlier, John was an ascetic. John lived in the wilderness. He wore camel fur clothing, which was itchy. And he ate locusts and he taught his disciples to fast. That was like a part, a key part of their spirituality. So John came neither eating and drinking and they accused him of having a demon. Jesus, on the other hand, he calls himself the son of man. He came eating and drinking. He's not an ascetic. And you know what? They accused him too. They accused him of having a demon once, and then they accused him of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. You cannot please these people, is what Jesus says. 
It's the spirit of religious control and legalism and spiritual abuse. You fast, they accuse you. You feast, they accuse you. You don't do exactly what they want you to do, and they get mad at you. That's what these people, these violent people, these greedy, power-hungry people are like. And it reveals the lens through which these people, this generation, viewed others. You can't be right. You can't be right. We played the music and you didn't dance. We wanted you to be sad and you wouldn't mourn. Why won't you do exactly what we want you to? Why won't you just cooperate with us? Another uh, part of this commentary they thought was really helpful, Leon Morris says again, his opponents evidently reasoned, this is Jesus' opponents, you can know a man by the company he keeps. Thus the people rejected John because he was an ascetic and Jesus because he was not. There was no logic, no reasonableness in their position. They would neither repent with John nor rejoice with Jesus. Filson, and he's just talking about another author, author, speaks of a comfortable evasion of God's urgent claim. And that sums it up. They did not want to reckon with God's claim and they manufactured reasons for passing it by. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. That's what Jesus says at the very end of the passage. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Just look at the deeds. Look at what John has done. Look at what I am doing. Look at what my disciples do. Look at the sorts of things that happen. Because that validates and vindicates the message and the people involved. And that, Jesus brings us back full circle to verses 2 through 6. Because John sends his disciples, hey, hey I know who Jesus is, but, but I'm confused. Why isn't the, the judgment happening? What, why are some captives being set free and I am in jail? Why is this happening? What is going on here? And Jesus says, look at the deeds and go back and tell John what you see and hear. So John comes to Jesus, or rather sends his disciples to Jesus with his doubt and his concern and his confusion and says, hey, what am I supposed to do? Should we wait? What's going on? Well, then there's this other set of people, these violent, power-hungry people who try to seize what they perceive to be the kingdom. And they subject it to violence and they accuse John for fasting, and then accuse Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're the exact same sorts of people who say, why won't you do exactly what we want you to do? You must be wrong. You must be sinful. You must be in league with Satan. And to them, Jesus says, the last verse in the text, wisdom is proved right or vindicated by her deeds. Look at the deeds. Look at what's going on. Look at what you see and hear. And now we don't have time necessarily to dive into uh, this word wisdom, but don't get thrown off by it, especially because Jesus personifies it as a woman. It's actually a very faithful Jewish teacher thing to do. If you were to read through the book of Proverbs, you would see that wisdom is often personified as a woman who you seek out or who seeks you out. Like a, like a father who's teaching his son, he, he personifies, the teacher personifies wisdom as a woman. And we get this even interesting picture in Proverbs 8, all about wisdom. Wisdom isn't a philosophical mindset, and it's not knowledge to attain. But wisdom, all throughout the Old Testament, and you particularly see it in Proverbs, the word is hokmah, it, it's related to the fear of the Lord. It says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And wisdom is also associated with right living. And to really sum it up in short, wisdom is all about having a right view of who God is and a right view of how to live in his world. So, so wisdom, Jesus says, truth, Jesus says, is validated, it's proved, it's vindicated by the deeds. But you have to have eyes to see. You have to have ears to hear. Because if you don't, you're going to look at the deeds, you're going to say, he has a demon. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and you're just going to dismiss it. So in order to really understand and really get what is going on, to, to recognize the tree by its fruit, to, bother, to borrow another uh, biblical analogy, you need to have the right heart posture, the right inner condition of the heart that isn't asserting over and it's not violence against to take by force, but it's to humbly come to Jesus. To humbly come, just like John, not to assert over and against like the Pharisees. And this, uh, this is where I think we are challenged and encouraged in 2018. Because what can we possibly get out of a text where, where this guy in jail is sending his disciples to ask Jesus a question he talks about the greatness of John? Well, I think this is where this passage meets us this morning. Because like I talked about before, we, we all struggle at times with those questions. And, and there's not really an easy answer for why evil continues in the world. But we have hope. And we have a promise. Because we do in part get to see those things set right and overcome. But yes, we still long for the day. Just like John longed for the day. And Peter longed for the day when he was executed. And Justin martyred it in, in, in 165, he longed for the day. And all throughout the ages, people have longed for the day when the Messiah would come back and he would set the world right. And death and evil and sin and cancer and wickedness and all that stuff would be completely done away with. And we continue to long for that day. And we pray for that day. I think the other implication or an other implication for us this morning is a challenge. What type of attitude and heart posture do you approach Jesus with? That's kind of a Christianese kind of phrase, but bear with me for a second. Do you approach Jesus with your expectations and say, Hey Jesus, I know who you are and I have expectations and you're not meeting those expectations. What should I do? Or, do you approach Jesus with your expectations and say, Jesus, dance for me now. Jesus, do this for me now. Jesus, if you don't do exactly what I'm expecting you to do, I'll dismiss you. You're just like one of the other teachers. If you don't listen to the response that I want you to, just, I can just dismiss you altogether. Now, it's a stark contrast. But both people have expectations and both people have hopes and dreams. But one, the approach is, hey, what should I do next? And the other is asserting power over and saying, if you don't do it the way I want you to, I'll dismiss you. I think in reality, we sometimes experience both. And probably most of the time, we do pretty good, right? We, we trust Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. Our, we hold to our allegiance, even in the confusion. But sometimes, uh, Jesus goes way too far beyond the boundaries. And we're tempted to not necessarily be angry, just outright and yell at him, though we might. It's more common for us to just grow bitter and frustrated. And, and what could happen over time, 
as that bitterness and that frustration sets in, is because that becomes the narrative through which you view your relationship with God. Prayer doesn't sound interesting at all because he's let you down in the past. Why would I continue to pray for things? And reading doesn't sound interesting at all. What, what more do I want to read about? And worship doesn't sound interesting because, I mean, what do I have to be? I guess I have some things to be thankful for, and I guess, so I guess I can. And that becomes the narrative. That bitterness and that frustration becomes the narrative through which we relate to God and think about God. So over time, listening prayer sounds terrible. A, a conversational relationship with God sounds impossible. And just like any human relationship, when you have missed expectations and that bitterness and that frustration sets in, just like in any human relationship where you get to that point, it's really hard to heal from it. But the good news is, that's the invitation this morning. You don't have to stay that way. The, inv- the invitation this morning is towards healing. It's not to just have all the questions answered and all the expectations met. But it's to come to Jesus, directly to him, and say, what do I do next? This is what I expected. This is what I wanted. This is what I'm experiencing. What do I do next? Because that's a fundamentally different position than allowing the bitterness and frustration in the jail cell to set in. The, the challenge, the encouragement this morning, if you find yourself in that bitterness and that frustration, is to come to Jesus by yourself, where you're seated, especially when we, we transition, or I don't know if we're going to have the prayer team up front afterwards. In, come and talk to one of us afterwards if you want someone to pray with. I have one more note just on doubt and uh, questions before we head to the table. There was an article on a very prominent Christian website and blog from three weeks ago. And the headline of the article, um, it was talking about doubt. It says, doubt is slander against the Almighty. Jesus died to save you from doubt, not to make space for it. And since it's a popular enough site, uh, I can only imagine that many of us have either been taught that mindset directly or we felt that being the position of the church. So essentially, this might say, unless you're certain about everything, about God and the church, about Jesus, unless you're certain, you have no real place here. Some of us have taught that or been taught that or felt that. And we, as a, as a leadership team, just want to humbly and as forcefully as possible disagree with that. Based on today's text and what I've already had to say, I want to reiterate that the church should be the most safe place to process through those questions. That the church, above all places in the world, should be the place where we can come with our missed expectations and our frustrations and our doubts and we can express those. Just like the psalmist did or or Jeremiah did in Lamentations. There's examples of it in Scripture So if you're not 100% certain 100% of the time exactly how to follow Jesus, you're not 100% certain 100% of the time just exactly the way that God is working in the world, well, you're in good company here. As we turn to the communion table this morning, we we do this every single week. So for those of you who are new, we open up the table every single week and we do what's called intinction. So you take the the bread, and you dip it in the cup, and we, we take it as a family. 
And we do this every week for, for several reasons. But this week, just in processing through what this passage has to say to us, Jesus goes, just like John, to a jail cell. And Jesus goes, just like John, to execution. Just like John, who asked that question, Jesus suffers at the hands of wickedness and evil and sin. Not only suffers at the hand of it, but actually in one sense takes it on himself. And that frees us from the penalty of that sin. What we remember at the table is not only that Jesus suffers too, but that Jesus leads the way in that. Jesus knows exactly what it's like. So as you come to the table this morning, what I want you to remember is that Christ does not call us to some suffering or hardship which he does not first experience himself. Jesus knows exactly what it's like. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we come to receive from you. We receive your body and your blood, which was broken for us, and your blood which was shed for us, you have given yourself to us and you continually give yourself to us. And that's a beautiful mystery and I don't even get how it works. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I know stories of, of people here who are in the midst of frustration and missed expectations and doubt and anger and why, God, are you letting this go on? God, I hope that through your spirit this morning you would actually speak to us and teach us to show us what is going on. But also acknowledge that the way that you answered when John asked you that question was both promising and frustrating. But we want to humbly come to you and ask what to do next. We don't want to assert over and against. We don't want to be the types of people who just say, if you don't do it the way I want you to, we reject you or we dismiss you, or we grow bitter and angry against you. We want to be people who come to you and, and ask, where should we go from here? So God, this morning as we come to the tables and as we pray and as we, we worship you, God, would you, would you speak to us about what we should do next? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.